Hey everybody, you're listening to Warm Regards, a dialogue between the climate scientists, newsmakers, journalists, and people on the front lines of climate change. I'm Eric Holthouse, joining you today tucked snugly inside a little makeshift closet recording studio in my sister-in-law's basement in Fort Collins, Colorado. I am on the road and I forgot my mic, but I have to say that Colorado is a lot better in July than Tucson. Um, it's It's been a while. Um, and I'm obviously a little bit out of practice, but how have you guys been? Um, do we, did we miss anything? Anything happened in the last few months? <laughs> nah, not much. It's been pretty quiet. <laughs> not. <laughs> I love that 90s not. Yeah, mm. bringing um, it back. Um, yeah. You seem to be, you know, backsliding on everything else, so why not? Sure. Might as well go back to the 1890s while we're at it. Is there, is there any sort of like um, sick classical saying of the 19th century? Forsooth. <laughs> Actually, that might be even older. <laughs> oh. Eat gads. Oh. <laughs> um. mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've been biting my nails just like everyone else, compulsively reading the news three in the morning. Um, but we, we've been just trying to get things together behind the scenes reporting the heck out of the Trump administration, writing research grants, plotting our return, and now we're back. So for today's show, we're going to walk through the three major climate developments in the first half year of President Trump, and hopefully end on a positive note, um, because what we're going to talk about is probably uh, pretty depressing at, at points. But um, but there's been a lot of good stuff that's gone on too, and we don't want that let, to let that slide. So to help me out, I'm joined as always by ProPublica's Andy Revkin and our resident paleoecologist, Jacqueline Gill. Hi, guys. Hey. Good to be back. <laughs> Sorry, while you were talking, I just, uh, it reminded me of this time last year when we were kind of underway with just starting the podcast and how when you said the words President Trump, I felt like I was living in some weird alternate reality that I had imagined last summer. And I, I don't know, I just feel like everything's gone off the rails in terms of like we're in the dark timeline, you know, and eventually we'll figure out how to get back on the right timeline. But that's never going to happen, is it? Uh, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so the number one story we did the little internal polling um to come up with these three items and the number one thing we came up with was um united states plans to withdraw from the paris agreement which is completely unthinkable this time last year you know as jacqueline was saying since we did a major job the obama administration did a major job of putting this thing together in the first place so now for us to be the only country besides what was it um Nicaragua, who didn't join out of protest because it didn't go far enough, and Syria, which is under a massive civil war right now, um, we're the only ones now that are backing out. So um, what does it mean, um, Andy, in the month or so? So this happened June 1st, this announcement was made. In the month or two since then, what do you think how how is that sitting on the international stage? Like, what does it seem? Did did it have a big effect or not that big of an effect? Or 
Well, you know, it, it's the difference between weather and climate. Is <laughs> the, There's been a lot of turbulence, but the climate trajectories and the trajectories and policy that relate, that will shape climate responses going forward, uh, even with a Trumpian kind of tsunami, um, the, there's not a lot he can do instantaneously to really affect what's going on or what's not going on. There's two sides to this. One side is uh, that, you know, as you've probably seen a lot of headlines, the uh, uh, renewable energy progress is not really subject that much right now to presidential tweaking. There's a, there's a lot that needs to be done to invigorate research. Um, uh, his uh, Secretary of Energy, Perry, at a meeting I was at this uh, in late April in New York City was all about R&D and all that stuff, but then he has been um, kind of very consistent with his past behavior, um, not really pushing, at least, or maybe powerless within this cabinet to do anything about it in terms of budgets. The, um, so, so the, but overall, the, the, the international scene, um, and even here in the States, as some of you, we, we'll probably talk about this a little bit more in a couple of minutes, there, uh, even, and I wrote this a while ago, even shortly after the, after the election, the trajectories toward uh, more renewables, even in states like Wyoming, are pretty well established, and they're not just sort of going to go, oh, you know, turn off that switch. It's just not that simple. Now, on the international yeah, on the international front, though, there, you know, the other thing is, well, um, what's he going to do? And there too, it takes time. He he has apparently his his minions have signaled that he's not going to take us out of the foundational 1992 climate convention, which uh, some people on the right had really been pushing for, and that's <laughs> semi. A semi-less calamitous kind of thing to 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 know that the, the overall structure remains intact. Um, how this then plays we, out we going forward? We wouldn't even have a seat them. at the negotiations, and if that happened, right, we wouldn't be involved in the cops or anything. Yeah, it would be well. You know, the same is true for the Law of the Sea Convention, where we still are not um, actually. <laughs> we haven't. We've said we're going to play by the rules, but we're not a part of it because of a few black uh, black helicopter kind of uh, senators obstructioning. Obstructing on that too. So um, the 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 major meeting that happened in between now and when um, he made this announcement to pull out of Paris was the G twenty in Germany, and that to me was sort of like a showcase of the new world order in some ways, where we had um, pragmatists like. Um, Germany and France and Canada, not by any means, you know, like game changing leadership coming from those countries, but at least towing the line and standing up for the path that that the world community has chosen and sort of like literally turning their backs to to um, to Trump at some points in time. Like there's this iconic image of Trump just sort of sitting at this big, long table with his little name card in front, of, in front of him, and everyone else is sort of like chatting happily in the background, and he's just sort of looking sad. So, <laughs> um, it, it's just like, and then there, you know, there became also this meme of the G nineteen versus the G twenty, like literally removing the United States from relevance. Um, it, it, it's almost like this. Everyone's just sort of like putting their finger in their ears and ignoring that this is even happening and moving on as if it hadn't happened at all. 
Well, then after Trump came back from France, there was some mention that, you know, after talking to President Macron, he might actually go back into the Paris Agreement. Do you guys think that that's at all realistic? Or is that just, you know, his sort of usual confusion and flip-flopping? Well, you just uh, as recently as a couple of days ago, there's um, uh, discussions of this. Um, uh, Bloomberg had a piece where, um, quoting Trump from the news conference in Paris, uh, saying something could happen with respect to the Paris Accord. I think you're right. It's just him kind of doing the art of the deal, Trump style, uh, keeping everybody off balance. And whether it's out of intent or out of incompetence is still kind of, um, it's probably yeah. some mix. <laughs> um yeah, I mean, the legally, the United States can't pull out of Paris until um, late 2020 anyway. Mm. Um, and that was done specifically to prevent a potential President Trump from doing this. <laughs> like, it, it's like the international community anticipated the possibility that Trump would be elected and try <laughs> to, like, torpedo everything and act pre- preventatively to stop that from happening. So... Uh, really nothing has changed and it doesn't really feel like anything has changed other than United States moving, you know, like a few rungs lower on the world stage, which, you know, sort of serves us, serves us right, I guess. I mean, <laughs> yeah, like on, on, we on a slightly downbeat note, one thing that I did write right after the announcement uh, was it's important not to jump to lionizing Europe or China in thinking just because Trump has kind of pulled us out for the moment. And I, I, that same meeting I mentioned a little while ago when uh, Rick Perry was in New York City, it was a Bloomberg New Energy Finance meeting. And that day he announced um, that uh, we were going to be starting to export a lot more liquefied natural gas from Texas to Europe. <laughs> and Europe... Uh, you know, has this weird uh, hypocritical, one might say, um, attitude on things like gas. They, they're desperate not to be beholden to Vladimir Putin, and which is, you know, he controls w- one of their big spigots for natural gas. And they've been lobbying, uh, I wrote that, uh, I reported that um, early, uh, right after, not, not long after the election, after, I mean, after the, um, Trump got in office, the Europeans were lobbying for a fast-tracking sending our hydrofract natural gas across the Atlantic, um, even as they're kind of n- refusing to use their development work to finance things like natural gas projects in, let's say, sub-Saharan Africa. So they're, they're, they're not exactly, you know, it's not off, not, not it's, it's hard to see them in the sort of hero role here necessarily. Everyone in this, and, that, and by the way, that leads to when you know that they're dependent on us for gas, that means strategically they can't be too um, heavy in terms of how they deal with Trump because of those back mm-hmm. backdoor realities. I don't want to be too depressing. I mean, <laughs> this is this is all really terrible. But at the same time, one of the things that has I found really heartening in the aftermath of Paris is just how much attention it got, right? I mean, I, if, I, if you had asked me to make a prediction, I would have thought that most average people wouldn't have been talking about this mm. at all, or it wouldn't have really been on people's radar. Um, and and yet, you know, on Twitter, in the immediate aftermath of the announcement that we were withdrawing, 
there was so much discussion. I mean, just so many people that I would not associate with, you know, climate Twitter were talking about it as though this were a really upsetting thing. And I had a series of tweets where I talked about the, all the ways in which, you know, the Paris Agreement was meant to be kind of Trump proof, as Eric said, but also that, you know, the world is moving towards cleaner energy and greener technology. Um, there's just a lot of market forces that are sort of moving away from um, sort of dirty energy anyway. Uh, and that there, there were some reasons to be hopeful, at least in the face of this. And those tweets blew up more than anything I've ever tweeted in the past. In like the pop star Lord and um, another band Grimes retweeted it. So there were all these musicians <laughs> that were tweeting it. I mean, so these are people who don't usually talk about climate change, right? And there was a ton of, um, a, a ton of people were just saying, thank you so much. You know, I was so depressed. Th these gave me hope. Um, you know, I was ready to jump off a bridge and, you know, now I feel better. And, and so, I mean, this, this whole experience, I think, really hit people quite hard and, and made it real for a lot of people that I think I would not classify as your usual sort of, you know, tree-hugging um, green crowd, um, at least on the internet. And, you know, even in the aftermath of that, and I'm sure, you know, Eric and Andy, you guys can speak to this more than I can, but there have been a lot of announcements that, you know, corporations, museums, um, cities, and states are going to be following, you know, essentially following the Paris Agreement as signatories, essentially. Um, so, you know, it's it's one of those things where in the lack of leadership by the United States, maybe that's actually motivating a lot of people and institutions to take action who otherwise might not have, which isn't to say it's a good thing, but there's sort of a silver lining, maybe. Yeah, and actually that is the second item that we wanted to talk to, so let's just go right into that, is that the role of um, state and local governments moving forward, because like you said, Jacqueline, this is a huge uh, vacuum that has almost overnight been filled by a type of leadership that feels a lot more urgent and local and pressing, and that just sort of resonates with people a lot more. You know, they feel more connected to climate action now, I think. Um, in, you know, anecdotally, that's what I've been noticing, that people people seem a lot more engaged than than they were even, you know, this time last year when it seemed like we would just be sort of on the steady slogs towards eventually, you know, solving all the world's problems. <laughs> and well, now it now it's it seems like you know, like, oh, I got to do this myself. You know, like, there's a lot of people who are like, oh, you know, tweeting or writing letters or calling their mayors um, to talk about climate action, not just focusing on the national and international scale, which is traditionally where we've been thinking about climate action as this grand thing that feels so far removed from our everyday life. Now it feels a little bit more immediate, I think. Well, so there's sort of two things I've even noticed. Um, you know, one is in the past, we we really framed climate action as this sort of, you know, individual actions versus um, the sort of governmental level um, regulatory action. So what, you know, the, often there are debates about whether or not even recycling or driving a Prius or being a vegetarian can actually make a difference. And, and occasionally you see people saying, you know, all of these things don't really matter. We need action at the, you know, really at the, the level of governments and sort of sort of nation states. Um, and yet there's a sort of middle ground, you know, at the level of st states and cities and um, companies, companies. Yeah. And even um, so we had 
uh, John Foley on, uh, you know, previously on the show, and uh, he announced that the California Academy of Sciences, I think, was the first muse- museum to sign on and, and really commit to, um, to you know, large scale reductions in emissions. And, and I think we haven't paid enough attention to the sort of middle level kinds of ac- activities. And then, of course, like the second thing would be, you know, the, just the tremendous amount of increase in you know, the so-called resistance, right, the individual level actions people are doing that have been actually tremendously effective, um, everything from the climate march to the March for Science to um, just the, the the huge number of people who I'm sure are, you know, using things like um, ResistBot or calling their local representatives for the first time, including a lot of scientists, actually, who are getting um, really, really engaged in in civics that, you know, have in the past really kind of not taken a, a strong role in advocacy. I mean, a lot of my colleagues are, are writing their first op-eds and doing doing those sorts of things. And so I'm seeing a huge upswing in, in individual actions, but also this sort of middle, middle level, um, middle scale um, activity. And, and I got to say, in Washington, there is, um, there are signs of, um, you know, progress. The, uh, there's this uh, Florida Republican Congressman, Carlos Curbelo, who had thrown together a um, the Climate Solutions Caucus with uh, 24 Democrats, 24 Republicans, and they were able to kind of, I mean, these are tiny little steps, you know, but they were able to um, make sure that a Defense Department report on climate change security implications was not uh, sort of uh, cut. And it's a tiny little vote in the tiny, <laughs> you know, in a very big issue, but just the fact that they're willing to uh, stick their heads above the the pr- the uh, edges of the uh, foxhole they're in, and say that there are re- Republicans in Congress who care about this issue. I think is a sign that um, there there's more than the uh, that the the um, there's a more scope to who's interested in sustaining a real conversation and real policy than maybe some think there might be. Mm-hmm. And even getting back to the state level, uh, last night in California, the assembly voted for uh, an extension of the the California state cap-and-trade program. And there were several Republicans that, that switched parties to, to vote for that. And, um, you know, it, it's been, the LA Times, I think, said it was the, um, the most significant bipartisan climate legislation ever passed in the United States, something like that. So one thing, so Andy and I were both at the Aspen Ideas Festival a couple of weeks ago, um, which was a completely wild experience that I'd be happy to talk about some other time. Uh, But it was also really powerful to be around so many people who were really big thinkers and and leaders and game changers. And one of the one of the things I I went to a lot of panels on the idea of carbon taxes or carbon dividends, because that's not something I know a ton about. And there was this really interesting panel, Andy, I'm not sure if you were there, um, on on this idea of carbon dividends as a consensus climate solution. And so it had, um, you know, Mark Tersak, Ted Halsted, Nick Schultz. So you you have like people from the Nature Conservancy and people from ExxonMobil on the same panel uh, coming to together to talk about this idea of essentially taking a carbon tax and then returning the, the money from that tax back to the citizens directly. So rather than that money going into the government, it goes directly to citizens as a, as a dividend, which essentially makes it a universal minimum guaranteed income, which is kind of cool, and also then doesn't disproportionately hurt developing countries um, uh, with, with, the, with sort of by, by uh, 
you know, that with, with the tax basically um, hurting development. And so, you know, this seeing ideas like that, and, you know, I'm not an economist, you know, full disclaimer, although I, I spent, you know, a couple of days, you know, chatting with some very nice economists. Um, uh, but so I don't I don't know the feasibility of these kinds of ideas. But the, the idea is that something like, you know, a plan like that, like a carbon dividend plan could be scalable so that if you're not reducing emissions by your target goals, you can then increase the dividend um, until you hit those those targets. And um, I, I mean, seeing those kinds of ideas come out of of corporations that I've spent my entire life being super skeptical of um, was gave me a lot of pause, and I'm still processing that entire experience. Um, so I don't know. I'd love to hear your thoughts too, Andy, on that. Um, well, the the thing that's resonating now that you mentioned that meeting was uh, I ran a panel uh, about this new documentary called From the Ashes, which is on coal and West Virginia and the and the past and the future, and it's about coal more generally in the states. But there were uh, there was a guy named Ben Gilmer who is a coal miner's son and grandson, and who now works in a program in, in West Virginia, helping to reinvent the econo- economic future there. And there were the film has these really powerful interviews with uh, sort of future-oriented people in West Virginia from from various political vantage points who um, are showing kind of a, a path forward in a state that's had so much uh, so many reverberations. Some of which remind me of some of the things you had described related to your father or grandfather, I can't remember, but, you know, being in the sort of the energy end of things um, when things got tough. And it was really hopeful and interesting. And it was about the role of activism as well uh, across the country and, um, you know, sort of re-making sure the checks and balances are there in energy policies. when, especially when there are laws to bring into to bear, it was pretty cool. Yeah, and just realizing that those kind of stories resonate more with people than um, than national politics. I think, um, especially in this era, I, I think people are sort of holding on to those sorts of stories as an example that that change is possible, even when it feels so daunting and and impossible. Um, at first glance, that you can still have a lot of of um, success in in trying to create a better world together, um, working with whatever community you can find yourself part of. Um, it it may not it may not turn out exactly as you had originally planned, but um, you know it seems like at least in West Virginia, there's sort of doing that tough job of reimagining themselves and as individuals and as a community um, and as a region uh, of the country that's that's in transition. For sure. By the way, it's uh, fromtheashesfilm.com is the website for the film. I encourage people to have a look. Um, what a, one other thing I was going to mention is that this moment, um, you know, sort of drawing these first two uh, points that we wanted to discuss together, this moment of pulling out of Paris and then the subsequent within days, just utter rejection of that from hundreds and thousands um, of of mayors and governors and CEOs and uh, university presidents and um, local leaders and state leaders. 
um, just saying that is not what's happening. We will not, we will not put up with that. Um, we're going to continue working as we always have to, to, um, reduce our, um, emissions that, that moment, I, I think it was Trevor Hauser who was in the white house under Obama tweeted out this graph, uh, this Google trends graph. And this, there's this massive spike of interest in, in climate change, um, around the uh, first few days of June that completely dwarfed the original signing of the Paris Agreement and Inconvenient Truth and, you know, anything else that we think of as major milestones in climate um, discussions in the last 10 to 15 years. This totally dwarfed everything. Um, it was as if, like, you know, the entire country country was waking up to the problem of climate change for the first time. And it was a pretty good time to do it too. I think it's like realizing that, you know, like I said earlier, it's up to us now to, to sort of come together and do this in spite of our leaders in some cases. Um, and, and not just sort of like, you know, for eight years under Obama, a lot of people just strike, Oh, well, you know, it's going to get taken care of now. It's, you know, it's our job to take care of it ourselves. Does there's one other thing I've seen this summer, which is, um, in education and teachers, because of what's going on, uh, you know, it's almost impossible not to talk about climate in a classroom, um, given how it's become the kind of issue that would just bubble up. And I, I was at a meeting just a couple of weeks ago with teachers from across the country who were trying to engage in finding new ways to broach climate change in classrooms in very diverse places, you know, diverse situations around the country, different kinds of states, red, blue, and, and find paths forward. And I think that's uh, an arena where you can see a lot of positive prospects. If, if it, it requires kind of pulling back from the sort of uh, uh, trench warfare approach to global warming, uh, but teachers seem to be uh, really eager to find a way to talk about it. My, my former colleague, Amy, Amy Harmon, at the New York Times did a wonderful story that ran in this uh, space, uh, this gap <laughs> between our before our last show, uh, uh, focusing on a teacher and, and a climate skeptic student and their their evolution uh, in the classroom. And, and that's an arena where I think right now there's more percolation than there had been for quite a while. Yeah, it's, it's, it's something that's very near and dear to my heart right now because for the last few months and uh, especially right now, this week, I've been working on uh, uh, the largest, most difficult thing I've ever written, more th more even than my dissertation, um, which is this National Science Foundation Early Career Grant. It's called the Career Award. And it's for early career, pre-tenure faculty. And it's a balance of research and education. It's un unlike all other NSF grants, you really have to integrate those two equally and also it's for a single person for there's no team per se like it's um, I'm the sole principal investigator the only PI on the grant and so the idea is it's an investment uh, it's five years and and it's investing in you as sort of the future uh, you know of the, the scientific workforce and um, and so it, you really have to write it as though not just for this sort of five-year window but what in terms of what your career goals are for you know 10 20 years you know what do you what do you want to accomplish? And it's it's been this very existential process for me in terms of really thinking through, you know, a lot of the things that I talk about on the show in terms of my own roots, where I'm coming from, what my motivations are um, in terms of, you know, doing the most good. And 
um, you know, really integrating that both from the research side of things and the teaching side. And so the research, it's interesting, the research that I'm proposing to do involves uh, d doing some of the paleo re reconstructions that I work on um, in the Arctic, and it's it's in, uh, tied in with some of the things about Pleistocene Park that we've talked about. Um, but the education component involves um, really focusing on rural, low-income, working-class, first-generation students, um, which is the majority of the students that we have here at the University of Maine. And so I've been really doing a deep dive into the literature on um, on you know climate change in K through 12 education, and also on how um, low-income students and rural students face unique challenges in terms of uh, barriers to, to to STEM careers or pathways. And a, a, a they're, they're you know low-income students are very underrepresented in STEM fields, and a lot of uh, especially rural s uh, teachers don't teach climate change. You know, as, as sort of you sh saw in that um, New York Times piece. In part because you know there it, it can be controversial, um, and we certainly know that a lot of rural districts played an important role in the last election. And so I, f I feel like all of these things are kind of coming, you know, coming together in this weird way, um, in terms of figuring out ways of reaching these these this unique population of of students who have these unique challenges in terms of just being exposed to science, being exposed to climate change. Um, and so really, my goal is to use sort of the lens of the ice age, <laughs> um, and some cool, you know, virtual reality gaming tools to um, to, to reach this group, and, and and the whole idea is that you know the ice age can be this sort of safe space, really, for <laughs> for thinking about climate change in, in a way where you don't have to worry about you know some of the political elements that might be scaring teachers away, but just also in terms of you know really inspiring these students who might be growing up you know many many hundreds of miles away from a university or a museum or you know, really any access to science programming on television or anything. And so it's it's been this sort of weird experience. The grants do Friday, so I'm I'm a bit distracted right now, but um, it's it's also just sort of where I'm where I'm at in terms of just thinking about it's it's forced me to really think about my my entire identity and I keep having these sort of existential moments of who am I? What am I doing? Why am I doing this? And and it's been a tremendously useful but very f scary experience. I think you just single-handedly doubled the enrollment of the University of Maine because I would love to take that <laughs> class <laughs> or whatever class you will have coming out of that. That sounds amazing. I hope so. Indeed. I hope the reviewers like it. Well, if not, there's always a career for you in podcasting. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Actually, well, it's it's funny because like I, you know, the the other day someone made the usual comment on Twitter about like, oh, you you climate scientists and your and your grant money gravy train, which is not the thing you want to hear when you're like working by yourself on this incredibly huge project to apply for funding that you know has like a you know less than ten percent success rate, um, and I was just like, you know what, I can make four times my salary working for an oil company with my skill set, right? Because I mm -hmm. work with fossil pollen in the geologic record, which is one of the ways that uh, oil prospectors use to figure out where they are in the record. So probably not podcasting, <laughs> but um, certainly if, you know, this whole thing just dries up, I guess I could always go go and work for an oil company. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't <laughs> let you stay on the podcast. <laughs> and suddenly, and suddenly, warmer cards takes a very dark turn. 
Uh, speaking of dark turns, actually, that's a perfect segue to our point number three. You're welcome. Uh, the New York Magazine <laughs> article of last week, um, which is like single-handedly like terrified a whole bunch of people, um, <laughs> and started a conversation again about how do we communicate climate in this um, in this current era where we've gone, you know, several decades now into uh, a, an experiment that is really, uh, by all, you know, scientific consensus, irreversible um, on timescales that are meaningful for the next several decades or even like centuries if you want to go out that long. But um, I don't know, does somebody want to, does somebody want to intro it or? Okay, so it's David Wallace Wells for the New York Magazine wrote an article called The Uninhabitable Earth, Famine, Economic Collapse, A Sun That Cooks Us, What Climate Change Could Wreak, is it wreak or reek? Rick? Wreck. <laughs> what Climate Change Could Beep Sooner Than You Think. Yeah, so a, a pretty sunny, cheerful article all around. Oh, yeah. Um, what, what are some of the, the headlines, uh, the section headlines? There's nine sections in um, Jacqueline. Um, so before I get into the sections, it's always really interesting to look at the URL of an article because it can give you a hint as to the title's history, which sometimes evolves, right? They might change it mm -hmm. because if it's not getting enough attention, they might change it to another title. So mm -hmm. the URL for this one, you know, is newyorkmag.com slash daily slash intelligence or slash blah, blah, blah. And it's climate change, earth too hot for humans, which is my memory of the original title, something like could the earth or when will the earth become too hot for humans? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that, so that's, I think that's an interesting point. Um, and then of course, section one is doomsday. So we start, you know, we start off pretty mild right off, <laughs> right out of the starting gate. Um, and then, and that goes along quite, quite long, actually. There's almost like a full, you know, I guess articles length of doomsday. And then there's heat death uh, and uh, followed by the end of food. Um, I guess it wouldn't really matter if we had food if we were all death dead. Um, dead for uh, cl yeah. Climate plagues, uh, unbreathable air, um, perpetual war, permanent economic collapse, poisoned oceans, the great filter, uh, which is you know basically kind of getting at this idea of why why we can't really see what's happening or or, or accept it. Um, sort of wrapping everything up. Um, and, they tr and he kind of tries to be hopeful at the end. I, I don't know that he succeeds. And I'm not, uh, I don't want to pick on David Wallace Wells, um, but I will say that um, there's this great website called Climate Feedback, climatefeedback.org, which is uh, essentially a, a, like kind of like peer review, but for scientists reviewing uh, popular media articles. And it's all... Um, volunteer so we just get I'm, I'm, I'm on the list so i get a ping when a when an article comes out and we're invited to read it and then summarize and provide feedback on the scientific accuracy um etc and so um at that i think now that it's up to maybe 16 or more scientists um who have reviewed the article and you can see sort of the in-depth uh takeaways um from from and the feedback from various scientists and you know this a lot of the scientists essentially rated this article as um, alarmist, um, which is always funny because that's what we're always accused of doing, um, in, in being imprecise or unclear and being mis misleading and that the, the overall scientific credibility is low. And then, in, of course, in response, 
just a few days ago, on July 15th, uh, the New York Magazine published an annotated version of the article, including sourcing, uh, which incorporates a lot of edits based on the scientists' comments, which I think is really useful. But there was also this whole kerfuffle about whether or not it's okay to scare people in terms of their action on climate change. And I think a lot of the a lot of the perspective, the scientific perspectives got lost among the discussion of whether or not it, there's like two conversations, right? One, one is what is accurate and when are you really, you know, when are you really going down the sort of into the almost the science fiction level of, of worst case scenarios and extremes? Um, and then when is it okay to scare people in order to motivate them to action. And sort of integrated among those two themes is this idea of when is it okay to sort of stretch the truth if the ultimate goal is that people do the right thing. And so there there, there have been a lot of conversations about this and some of them have been quite heated. Um, Eric, you were involved in several of them. <laughs> he um, actually, he's a lovely person, I have to say. I was emailing back and forth with him all week in the author, David Wallace Wells. And um, he responded to me with a 110 tweet thread, um, my specific criticisms of his article. I, I tweeted, I think 14 things that I found <laughs> that didn't quite make sense to me in the, in the article, um, just from a climate science standpoint, I've never had that sort of response before, um, from anything I've done or said or thought <laughs> or anything really, um, the fact that he took that much time to respond to me in a public way, uh, you know, I, you know, I give him credit for that. <laughs> um, and the, at the end, at the end of the week, I think it was, it was, um, I mean, I had, I had sort of come around a little bit, actually. I think that his whole project here, which was painting a readable, um, really, you know, excellently described, somewhat fictitious um, version of what might happen in our lifetimes. Um, I think that's a good project to do. Um, and I mean, I personally would have done it a little bit differently, but I think that he was on to something. And clearly, you know, it became... Uh, you know, on Friday, New York Magazine announced that this was the single most read article in New York Magazine history. Um, wow. Clearly res resonated with digital history. <laughs> they have digital no way of knowing. <laughs> they have no sure, way of, of knowing. Course. Yeah, no. They're I not going to go and tra track how many people, you know, your I, I grandmother's know. copy of New York Magazine <laughs> got circulated how around at the dentist's office. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, you know, in the last, whatever, like several right. years, um, it, it was the, the number one um, post. And I think that that means, you know, uh, actually, first of all, I have to say that, um, and I wouldn't bring this up otherwise, except for I've learned something from this process. But a couple of years ago, I wrote a, a post that was actually somewhat similar to this for Rolling Stone, talking about um, ocean extinction. And actually, that was the first time I met Jacqueline was during an interview for that um, for that piece and I don't I don't remember which, which I'll, I will say it was super funny because like I'm like I got one I mean the the direction of the piece kind of changed from when you interview me and so and so there was like one sentence in there of mine and oh yeah it, of all of my accomplishments 
like no more of my friends and family <laughs> were like oh my god you're in rolling stone <laughs> you know like it doesn't matter like giving giving talks getting awards publishing in like top journals like no it was like one sentence in rolling stone is my like is like my my like high the highlight of my life <laughs> uh, that's that's how things work sometimes anyway oh though, it's fine yeah that's no, cool this the, the, that post also was the most read article in Rolling Stone history. So, uh, I mean, I, I know what that experience was like to write this sort of mega article that everyone starts talking about. And sort of in my article also got um, reviewed by Climate Feedback. And they gave it a uh, accuracy is debated um, <laughs> tag, which is the f- first and only time they've ever done that. Um, so, like, there are, I think, like, seven or eight people that rated it with a high accuracy, and, like, four or five people that rated it with a low accuracy, so they couldn't actually just take the average of that. But, anyway, um, point Which is, I should also, sorry to interrupt one more time, I should yeah. also say, like, that just, mm, it just speaks to this idea of, like, you know, whenever people talk about, oh, you know, challenge the climate consensus or, oh, we need to have debates or, oh, we need some way of reviewing scientists. Like we all argue about all of this all the time already. We don't need more. Yeah. And actually, you know, the negative reviews of that Rolling Stone piece was mostly, you know, you guys didn't cite your references for a lot of these claims. And that was just because that was Rolling Stone style, not to include links in a, a piece of that length. Um, and to to sort of like speed up the readability of it they want people to finish the article they don't want people to sort of like click on it and get dragged away but anyway we went back in and added in a bunch of links um, that that the reviewers were asking for so um, anyway you know from from this experience last week and as well as my Rolling Stone experience I I, um, sent out in my newsletter a um a a few tips for 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 climate journalists going forward um and um i'm just gonna read them off really quick because i think um i think it's an at least for me it was sort of like a revelation um to think that this because i i'd always been thinking oh that was just sort of a one-off thing that rolling stone piece like it was just sort of a freak thing that happened but then the new york magazine thing happened and I was like, wow, like people really, really love diving into the worst case scenarios. So, um, so I guess my advice going forward would be to just go with that. Um, you know, find those, find those stories that, that maybe climate scientists seem a little bit nervous talking about. And, um, and as long as it's rigorously grounded in the science, you know, readers are going to eat it up, probably, because it's weird and it's plausible. You know, our planet could fundamentally change in a lot of different ways. And that's something that's newsworthy that we should tell uh, that story. Um, those tail risks, those tail risks of climate change are really compelling journalism. Um, and... Uh, but the most important thing, and this is where um, I think both David Wallace Wells and I got it wrong, um, was that you got to plant the seed of possibility or, and hope at the end of the article and invite people, invite readers to become a part of this really horrific thing that could possibly happen. Because 
you know, takeaway of all takeaways is that it's not locked in stone yet. Like we can still change it. Uh, we are all part of the story and we're shaping it every single day. So that's the real story in these worst case scenarios is that they are avoidable and um, we can all do something to sort of prevent them from happening. Um, and I didn't really do that great of a job at that. And, and I don't think, uh, I don't think the New York magazine piece did either. So when there is, uh, um, when there is a sort of apocalyptic story that then provides hope at the end, then I will say we've learned our lesson, but until then, this is all still a work in progress. Yeah, I, I'm going to differ because there's, um, I think uh, calling this compelling journalism is, is a mistake. It's compelling storytelling for sure. Um, but journalism has a, if it doesn't get the, the therefore part, then it's really, to me, not, not doing the job. And this is not just in this piece. My, my good friends at the New York Times who spent uh, about a quarter million dollars sending four or five people to Antarctica um, I think I wrote this somewhere. It, it was all about what's ch changing, but but there was nothing about what this means uh, for the you know what's the, and and that you know without a part five in that case I think it was kind of missing a really well, there's a real lost opportunity uh, in this case the same thing is missing that this will sound weird but the other thing that happened since our hiatus is Brett Stevens who is the New York Times new conservative columnist. Uh, in his inaugural column, his first one on climate change, uh, he quoted me as, a, as supporting his thesis that, hey, there's, now this, it's clear there's a lot of uncertainty in climate change. Let's talk. And he, he also, and I wrote a 2,000-word response for ProPublica saying, that's not the message when there's deep uncertainty around an issue. The message is there's things you need to do and things that they're clear signals even in the face of deep uncertainty. So in a weird way, uh, this Wallace piece and him, he were articulating the edges of something, but not saying, therefore, therefore. And the therefore is, uh, yes, there's there's some really bad things in, 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 in for sea level. I mean, forget, you know, there's millennia of sea level coming unless we do some wacky geoengineering thing. That's done. Um, but then, so therefore what? And part of what he left, by leaving out the flip side, by leaving out the articulation that it could be a 1.5 degree warming from a doubled CO2 or those then you're not you're leaving out the scariest thing of all which the scariest thing of all as you guys know this is that we're really bad as a species as individuals and as communities uh, in reacting um, rationally what scientists or risk managers would say is rationally to uh, long time scales risk dispersed over geography uh, deep uncertainty even when the consequences are large and that's by far scarier than any single thing that he laid out in that article and and that to me was a uh, there are several levels of failure in all of this the well, fact really that we haven't um sorry the, the fact that we haven't done anything about it yet that's a meaningful oh i don't think the human species has has e even remotely integrated the scope of what's possible and and you know and I when you look at what would have to happen to have a decarbonized energy system heading toward nine billion people who want to be middle class at the very least the, the world you know the Paris is as I've written many times Paris is like a rough sketch with no detail on how you would actually do these cuts eat with or without Donald Trump in the White House and um, 
so so that's the scary thing. Ray Pierre Humbert, who's a climate scientist I, I've listened to a lot over the years, uh, I did a uh, little video interview with him where he says, you know, uh, they did a, they did an amazing paper two years ago. He and others uh, on the multimillennial consequences of a mm. 21st century en energy policy for climate and sea level, and and, and none of what they said in there is remotely uncertain. And, y and you don't have to go to the edges of the argument of the worst case to know that we're transforming the planet and, and, and that this is a particularly momentous time in our history. So, so I, again, you know, it's, it's, uh, in 2007, I just realized it was one week after I started Dot Earth, back in the New York Times, October 2007, I wrote a piece on um, climate porn. <laughs> there was a, a British, a, a progressive British think tank which in 2007 was saying the media coverage of climate change at that time was tantamount to climate porn, offering a thrilling spectacle but ultimately distancing, distancing the public from the problem. And so we're right back to 2007, you know? Um, none of this yes, is new uh, that's in what some I ways. Think, that's what I think about those long timescales talking. I, I think it's, uh, and, and I mean, uh, Jacqueline, you work in sort of deep time, but I have to say that as a journalist, writing about multi-millennial sea level rise is completely meaningless. Like, I, I don't really understand why that's even newsworthy at all, because it's not going to change anyone's perception of what they're going to be doing tomorrow. Like, I'm not going to change. Like, if I if somebody told me that we'd have seven thousand meters of sea level rise in <laughs> six thousand years from now, I'd be like, great. Like, who cares? Um, oh man, it, it's like. I don't really know that like that drives people. Um, I, I think that focusing on that, and that's just how I think humans are wired. That if we talk about what is happening in our lifetimes, and maybe our kids' lifetimes, but really in our lifetimes, that's the stories that need to be told. Like what what's changing now? What could be possible now? And so it, that's going to drive action. That's just my personal viewpoint, but um, it, yeah, it just well, it's sort interesting. Of me. It's interesting because I, you know, maybe, and I've always wondered, like, am I drawn to deep time because of something inherent in my brain, or <clears throat> have I just trained myself right to to think on these timescales, and therefore, you know, it, I just think differently because knowing that something is going to be tremendously impactful in 6,000 years almost motivates me more, right? As opposed to, oh, if it's just a, a short-term thing, you know, we can adjust. Um, uh, and just just thinking in terms of, you know, the, the choices that people made 5,000 years ago that affect us now often weigh heavily on my mind. And I I think that maybe it's, be, maybe it's because I think in those terms that, you know, it's 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 easier for me to think about the long the long term consequences not only for people but for for the planet and these sort of irreversible shifts or changes that could have you know tremendous impacts uh, especially when it comes to things like extinction which is something I work with a lot although you know with the with the side note that the old truism that extinction is forever may not be true much longer um, but yeah it, it's interesting I mean I, I I find those those ideas very motivating because if if it's something that can be that profoundly um, that can change the earth so profoundly as, you know, to have an impact on long timescales, then that to me says, whoa, that's a big change. Um, and I, I guess it also, to, to get back to something Andy was saying too, we're, we're, we're dancing around these ideas about uncertainty and also psychology. And, and I'm 
very hopeful that, you know, over the next months we can bring on a, you know, climate psychologist and also some people who who deal with these ideas about uncertainty because I think they're some of the biggest challenges we face in terms of communicating science to the to the public and and getting people to be motivated to take action. And, you know, like this idea that, you know, a lot of people hear the word uncertainty and think it just means that we don't know what's going to happen, right? That how much sea level we expect or how much how much uh, how much warming we'll expect with a doubling of CO2 is uncertain. That doesn't mean that we don't know. It's not going to, you know, be anything from, you know, you know, negative 40 to a thousand Kelvin. You know what I mean? Like it's not it doesn't mean we just have no idea that there's a boundary around possibilities. And, and, and uncertainty uncertainty just means that there's a there's a prediction with some you know error around it. And uh, we can narrow that down with more research. Um, but communicating that effectively, that range of variability or that range of uncertainty is tremendously challenging, especially when you're trying to motivate people. And also just again, getting back to this idea of, of fear um, and whether or not fear is a good motivator in, in terms of, of communication, I think is also another challenge because, you know, especially if you're trying to scare people, people want, want hard numbers, right? And that's something that I often get asked for by, by journalists, right? Is how much will sea level rise in the next century? How much warmer will it be for my grandkids? When will we lose these animals? When will these trees leave Maine? Um, and they don't want to range, right? People don't want to range. They want to know an, an exact number because then you can plan. And so these these ideas of, of, of sort of certainty and, and and motivation, I think, are, are some of our biggest challenges. And fortunately, you know, we they're all, you know, questions of whether or not, say, fear is a good motivator um, or how well people understand concepts of uncertainty. Those are all testable hypotheses, and there are people who are doing that actively in, in the climate communication and climate and sort of psychology research and decision-making research and risk management research um, realms. Those are all active areas of research. And so I think there are all these disciplines that we can draw upon to, to learn from in terms of what makes effective uh, you know, communication strategies to motivate people to action, because that's what we want at the end of the day, right? We don't want to just tell the good story about about ocean acidification. We want to tell the story about ocean acidification that motivates people and governments to make changes to prevent them, right? That's, mm -hmm. it's not helpful just to know what's coming. Ideally, you know, you want to know whether what's coming is preventable. Yeah, and that's where I think a lot of scientific criticism of, or science, scientists' criticism of this New York Magazine article centered is that he presented these facts as more certain than they were than they were um, than the science says that they are and even when talking about worst case scenario maybe even especially when talking about worst case scenario we have to be uh, transparent about the sort of uncertainty that these um, that underlies those statements so like he could have said you know to the best of our knowledge, this is one thing that might happen. But it was just like, this is what might happen. Or like, this is what will happen. It, it, it was just, you know, dancing around, like, is this likely or is this a far off thing? Like, you know, and, and like you said, Jacqueline, if the goal of a piece of journalism like that, which he said was his goal, was to motivate action, um, you, you have to know what's certain and what's not so you can plan. And if people are planning for the kinds of things that were in that article, I feel like people are going to, uh, I mean, over plan. 
I mean, maybe that's not a bad thing. And that's kind of what the whole point was. What he was saying is like, well, uh, you know, if we prepare for the worst case scenario, then we'll be ready for anything. And what's, un- what's unfortunate about that is that there was a tremendous amount of work done around the IPCC to quantify the words that we use when we talk about whether something is likely, very likely, unlikely, certain. Those have actual numbers around them. They're, they're, there are probabilities associated with them. A certain percent chance equals likely. Um, and I mean, there was a lot of work that went into making that language clear and consistent and meaningful. And so then to just see that not be adopted in other in other realms has, has been a bit frustrating. I don't know, Andy, maybe you know whether or not there's been, there've been problems with the, that terminology as introduced in the IPCC, but um, I just, I think, I think there was an, a missed opportunity in that, that piece to basically say really in, in a, a really upfront way, like, look, you know, this is the worst case scenario. This is, you know, what could happen with, you know, a 5% chance or, or 10, you know, possibly 10% likelihood. We're kind of spitballing here, but, you know, these are the likely outcomes. These are the unlikely outcomes, or, you know, these are the sort of tail end of the predictions. And I guess it doesn't make for good storytelling to to be that quantitative, but at the same time, um, I don't know, I, I guess I worry, right? Because you you want to motivate people, but, you know, I grew up in an era in the 90s where we were constantly told, you know, when I was in high school, that there would be no rainforests by the time I was 20. And, you know, to sort of grow up and find that that turned out not to be true, and not necessarily because of a lot of, you know, protections or regulations. Uh, so it wasn't necessarily a worst case scenario diverted, but just because there was, you know, the, the, the environmental movement of the 90s was accused of a lot of kind of fear mongering and, and exaggeration. And I think we potentially lost a lot of trust among the public. Um, and, and of course, that's, you know, that's always the danger, right? It's, it's if you, if you, if you tell the truth, and people believe you, and they take action, and you avert the crisis, there's always the risk, I guess, of, of, being accused of li- of lying because the crisis was averted, um, but again, you know, th- the whole point at the end of the day is to try to prevent the crisis in the first place. Yeah, I'll just get back to what I said earlier about, uh, and th- I think there is a communication opportunity, especially for scientists, uh, which is probably why they weighed in on this example to convey something that Eric I think said earlier, which is, uh, oh no, maybe it was you, Jacqueline, <laughs> um, that uncertainty is a form of knowledge. You know, I wrote a piece years ago. The IPCC hired some high-priced consultants, communication consultants, to tell them how to come out with their last um, report. And they were advised not to use the word uncertainty and not to use the word risk because mm. because average people have different definitions of those words than scientists do. And I think, to me, I don't know, who am I? I'm not a high-paid consultant, but... But to me, I- if there's a deep gulf between how scientists perceive the word risk and, and the public, then what an opportunity to have a conversation and, and, and say that uncertainty is a form of knowledge. If it's bounded, if you actually know the range, and that, that's, that, that's actionable. What we need is for Malcolm Gladwell to write a book called Uncertainty. Right. I mean, that, or maybe, that the, maybe I should, maybe that's what I need to do. You could. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, that sort of the pop science book of the year, you know, that, <laughs> Good idea. that just, you know, gets on everybody's radar and gets everyone talking and talks about it. Like it's this innovative new concept that will, you right. know, change your life. A short Here's history of uncertainty. uncertainty is the, the highest form of knowledge. 
Bingo. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah, it's got to have that sort of pop, slightly pop psychology right. um, kind of possible slight Venn diagram overlap with productivity maybe or innovative creative thinking. <laughs> I don't know. You've got to have that spin or it won't the, get the it won't Ted, blow The up. TED Talk, right? Yeah, yeah the, te- yeah, the to, TED Talk, yeah, yeah. Malcolm Gladwell. How to grow your startup in three <laughs> steps. Yeah. Right. There you go. Onward. Um, I think that we did a pretty good job for being out of practice for several months. I don't know. Well, more um, to come. Anyway, we're back. <laughs> yeah, we're back more to on come. Bicycle, um, right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, if you guys uh, and now I'm speaking to everyone here, if you have um, feedback on our show or what you'd like to see us do in the next coming months, we're planning on um, mapping out a regular production schedule now. So we'll be back and we'll be around. Um, send us an email. Our email address is ourwarmregards at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at ourwarmregards. Um, if you have show ideas, future guest ideas, you know, like email address, you can send, Jacqueline can send her resume to in an oil company, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm gonna get, <laughs> I'm gonna get tenure. Don't scare me like that. <laughs> Yeah, so we'd love to hear from you. Um, Okay, for Jacqueline and Andy and our producers, Eric Mack and Jesse Ann Baines, I'm Eric Holthouse. Uh, Thank you for listening, everybody.